This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's podcast is such a treat for me because I have someone who has become a great friend of mine after I interviewed him for my book called I Am The Storm, inspiring stories of people who fight against overwhelming odds. Adam Curry has worn many hats in his career, but I remember him well from his MTV days as a VJ who had a pretty awesome job interviewing famous rock stars and he had equally famous rock star hair. But what I also found out is that Adam is one of the pioneers of what you are listening to right now. Podcasting. He's been nicknamed the Podfather because of his involvement in this forum back in the 2000s. He was also one of the first people to personally create and administer websites. Not only does Adam have some incredible stories about his life and career, but he's just a wonderful storyteller, and I not only enjoyed writing about him, but I really love him as a person. He's one of those guys that I know if I ever needed something, he would do everything he could to help me out. All I have to do is ask, and you'll find that out during this interview. Please welcome the incredibly talented, brilliant, and kind host of his own popular podcast, No Agenda, which you can find anywhere podcasts are found, including this one. Adam Curry is on the Janice Dean podcast. Okay, Adam, I'm so happy that you're here. Adam Curry, you made the Dean's list. <laughs> yes, the first time in my life. I'm not such a scholar, to be quite honest. Stop. You and I have talked. Full disclosure, Adam is chapter two in my book, I Am the Storm. I have to say it is one of my favorite chapters because I came to love you, like not only as, you know, your story and your family, but just you as a human. I feel I'm so grateful to know you. Oh, well, the feeling is mutual, Janice. I think we had, you know, four, maybe five multi-hour long conversations. We did. And it was, and, and uh, Tina, my wife and I, we got to meet you and your husband in New York. It was really nice. And it's good to talk to you again. Where have you been? You kind of like uh, give me the cold shoulder. No, I talked to you for ages. That is not, well, you know, you know, life happens. <laughs> I'm but just you're, busting your chops. You're <laughs> always on my mind, though, because... We talked about so many things, uh, and really, sometimes there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about something that you said uh, or an achievement that you've had in your life. Like the other day, someone was someone brought up just ask Jeeves, and I was like, I know the guy, I know that guy that came up with ask Jeeves, and his name is Adam Curry. <laughs> Well, I, I can't I can't quite take the credit for that, but I, I was an early, early, early investor in Ask Jeeves, which was for those who don't know, it was uh, a certain. In fact, it was kind of the branding of AI today. 
Wow. Like you would have, there was this search engine and the, the idea was great. The search engine was you were asking Jeeves, Jeeves being the stereotypical British butler yes. who has the little, the silver plate. There I remember. And, <laughs> and, um, uh, and ask Jeeves would serve you up uh, answers, not just search results. That was the whole idea. And um, that was a very successful launch, a very successful IPO. And then Ask Jeeves just went all the way down into the depths of the swamp, like within six months and it was gone. No, I, but I someone think... remembered and I was like, yes, that was pre-Google, pre-all yeah. of these search engines. It was. Yeah, I, I think at the time, um, how oh, was it? Alta Vista was yes. around. I, I remember if, you, if anybody remembers. It's so crazy. I was thinking about that the other day, how, you know, you and I both have really witnessed the rise of the Internet. You know, there's that famous uh, video of the of the Today Show, I think, where they're all sitting on the couch. Brian Gumbel and uh, goodness, who else was it? Katie um, Couric. Yeah, Katie Kirk. Yep. And like, yeah, you can send us an, an email, an electronic mail. And they were all, oh, this is. And I, just the other day, I read this term, the information superhighway. You yes, remember that one? Of course I do. And yeah. how far we've come in, well, what is it? Uh, 30 years, 25 mm -hmm. years, I'd guess. Something. Yeah. Yeah. 25, 30 years. I mean, I was on the Internet in 86, 87 before the World Wide Web. And that was just the network itself. And now to see that, you know, I'll pop open Twitter once a day these days or X. And 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 I and I will say the thing that I always love is I see you pop up from time to time. Aww. That part of the algorithm is good. And it pops up and it shows me what you're doing. And that's you're one of those people that just pops into my feed like, oh, she's doing fine. OK, click on, the like. click on the heart button. <laughs> you're the best. Uh, well, listen, I wouldn't be sitting here on this Janice Dean podcast if it wasn't for you, my friend. Well, again, you're giving me a lot of credit. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Read the book. Chapter two. Yeah, there's. It's interesting because there's so, I, I look back and yes, I'm credited as the inventor of podcasting, but first of all, it could only be co-inventor because Dave Weiner implemented the technical part. And but we both probably stood on on shoulders of giants from you know going back to even uh, the invention of the internet itself, which mm -hmm. we all know was Al Gore. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yes, and 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 not just that, but thousands, if not tens of thousands, of software developers who you know spent millions of hours working on creating uh, programs. We didn't have apps when this was invented. We didn't have smartphones, uh, so we called them uh, applications mm -hmm. or program. Hey, let me load that program on my computer. Um, who really built it all out and made it work and created hosting companies. And so um, the vision was, I mean, for me, it was it was something, I don't know, I, I have to go kind of like a hip hopper and say, you know, it came from God because when I saw the iPod, that's when it all clicked in my head. I was mm. like, oh, wait a minute. This is a radio, not just a digital jukebox. We can connect this so that radio programs, or you know, which will be pre-recorded, come in and and they're stored there, and then you can shift the time of day and listen whenever you want to. That was the thing that that really came to me, and I was able to translate uh, towards the developers who made that happen. Yeah, that was the light bulb. What was it like being in the room with um, with Steve Jobs 
when he was playing your, you know, broadcast? Well, there was a meeting. We had a meeting before that, uh, a one-on-one, like an hour long, which was, you know, if, if you read anything about Steve Jobs, you'll see quickly that if he was courting you for anything, then that was the best Steve Jobs. And he was very, very good at it. I got that Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, the other Steve Jobs, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad I never had to witness that. Um, but he had planned to put podcasting into iTunes, which is, you know, was the the mechanism in order to update podcasting on your iPod at the time. Again, we did not have a phone when this first came out. And, right, uh, I remember. So, this, so yeah, it, it, it was available on the iPod in, I think, 2006. And he had invited me to come have a chat with him. And I knew it was going to be about podcasting. I didn't exactly know what was, it was just, just to have someone call you and say, hey, Steve would like to have a meeting with you. Like, okay, you know, that's up on the list. Never (laughs) expected that one to happen. Uh, And, and, you know, we, we talked for an hour. He was so personable and so nice. And I noticed all these interesting things that, you know, like he had a lisp. I didn't, I never noticed a lisp. Mm. He certainly doesn't have it on, or never had it on stage. And uh, and he was very interested in, in, in what I was doing and how I was doing. And it turns out he had been watching this development of podcasting for quite a while. And it, what he, what had happened was, and I don't know how that worked internally at Apple, but I was using at the time, what, what we now call iCloud back in the day was called, I think, Mac Drive or something mm-hmm. uh, or Mac Disk or, you know, it was a similar idea. And you had an icon on your desktop and you could drag something in there and it would be stored on Apple servers. And I was using that for testing for my first podcast, the daily source code. And no one had ever used it for that for that mechanism. And so there was a lot of bandwidth that was being used and you know, storage was filling up. And somehow that the way Steve Jobs told it is that, you know, we saw what you were doing and they wanted to cut you off. And I said, no, 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 let's see. Let's see what he where he goes with this. I'm like, wow, really? <laughs> you were doing that in the background. So all these things that, that you learn uh, and and that's probably how technology advances in general. You know, people f- stumble upon something, uh, people let people go and they, you know, let them stumble. And you know, these days, exploration like that is is seems to be cut off much quicker, like oh, it's not in our terms of service. And 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 then, you know, not much later, all of a sudden he's on stage presenting. And so the reason why he he asked to talk with me is he wanted to ask for my permission now, this is open source. There's no patents on it by design, because if there was a patent on it, I don't think it would have ever taken off. If it had and I had a patent, well, there'd be some very wealthy guys in Texas and in uh, and in New York where Dave is. But I don't think it would have worked. And the whole idea was anybody can do this. There's no cost. There's no barrier to entry. It's free and open for all to use however you want to, as long as you adhere to this one simple format. Um, this technology format so that it works on all software programs, i.e. one transmitter and all radios understand how to receive the signal. Mm. Um, But he still asked me, which was really um, flattering. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, of course. Are you kidding me? And I gave him, we had just started a directory. I think there were 5,000 podcasts at the time that we had collected, which was actually quite nice because it was an open directory and we had people in, in different countries managing all these, uh, you know, the, the lists of 
what podcasts and categories. And so it was really a community collaborative effort, um, which they, they, they might, I don't think they even were aware of it. So I said, Hey, you know, this is what you should use. And then, you know, not much later, he's on stage presenting it in a typical Steve Jobs fashion where he plays a clip from from my podcast where I'm cursing out the Macintosh because it's, it's breaking. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and like he didn't know that that's what I said. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then, he goes, oh, OK. And then the whole crowd is laughing. And so that was such a beautiful spark to show that, yeah, this is not your typical radio program it's not npr it's not your top 40 you know wacky morning zoo it's something more a little risque and 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 look how risque it is he's even ragging on on my art you know because that's how i think steve perceived everything that apple did so it was such a beautiful launch and still on youtube you can still see that clip um and from there yeah it was just off to the races and we had you know one email exchange after that and of course never heard from him again but that's okay i had my my brush with greatness absolutely and we'll be back with more of the janice dean podcast right after this hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you think the podcast world is oversaturated now? No, actually, I think it's going in the right direction. Mm. Um, During COVID, there was a huge explosion of... um, uh, of of people sitting at home. What am yeah. I going to do? Creating podcasts. Also, b- right before, you know, in 2000, I want to say 15 or 16, podcasting was rediscovered by the world thanks to the podcast Serial. Hmm. And this was at a very cool moment in media time, in the media timeline, because everybody had just gotten into, you know, we were all binging. We were, we'd seen all five seasons of Breaking Bad, you know, <laughs> yes. we, House of Cards. We we're just going nuts. We're showing up to work Monday, bleary eye, like, oh, yeah, I was binging all weekend long. <laughs> and then suddenly here's this program, which now true crime is certainly in the United States. People love uh, true crime stories. It's, it's, it's a great format. And it's also one that works uniquely well for audio. So the serial podcast was not only that and well-produced, but you couldn't binge it unless you came in way late. You could not binge it. You So you might be able to catch up the first two episodes, but you actually had to wait until the next week to find out what's going on. This became water cooler talk. People were excited for that, for that next episode. It, it was really a throwback to... Um, you know, to even radio plays of Roy Rogers and stuff back in the, you know, and the the Lone Ranger back in the day where you had to wait until next week to find out what happens in the ongoing story. So it had this resurgence at a moment where the financial system uh, in the world, and certainly in the United States, where money was pretty much free. And when I say that, um, I mean that the interest rates were uh, effectively zero. So any uh, any media company, any Silicon Valley company was very easy to acquire to get money to do things and to try things because the cost of it was so incredibly, incredibly low. So we, what happened with that is 
there was a huge influx of uh, professional radio people, a lot of NPR, uh, uh, you know, a lot of radio people who said, oh, oh, this is this is a great future. And they kind of created what I call the podcast industrial complex. And um, and you saw big names coming in, big, you know, big names with big money. And Spotify, of course, jumped in and uh, both feet you know, and they were in the public market. So they had easy access to capital and they spent a billion dollars on acquiring podcast production companies, on acquiring talent, most famously, my friend Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, other shows were, you know, were tens of millions of dollars, the Obamas, uh, uh, the Kim Kardashian. I mean, you name it. There was, And so they kind of moved a little bit towards a celebrity type podcast format and Meghan Markle and Harry. And um, and as, as we went into uh, the COVID time period, there was just so much money available that so many things were created that really had no commercial reason for existence. Mm. And so what we've seen now and Spotify is most hurt by this is, you know, it didn't pan out and now the money is no longer cheap. Now we have, uh, you know, in order to borrow money, it's just, it's, it's barely, it's just not feasible the way it was. So the money is gone. Um, the contracts are drying up and people who probably were just in it for celebrity, you know, for a, like a, Oh, it's, it's a celebrity thing. That's what I'm going to do this week with my fame. Uh, I think that that is over and gone. You're seeing that the, all of these things didn't pan out on a, all these celebrity type podcasts did not pan out on a, on a uh, fundamental financial basis, mm-hmm. but also the extraordinary amounts of money that we're being put into good programming. I'm not saying it's bad, but even you saw NPR who had to fire, uh, you know, I think it was 50% of their podcasting staff because yeah, they were making very interesting podcasts. But when you have a budget of a million dollars for a podcast, then then the advertise, if it's an advertising model, it's just not there. Well, then that has to end. And so we're seeing all of that ending now, which for my money, for my, for my love of the medium is where other people get to shine. Wow. If you're doing a podcast just for money, well, good luck because it's, it's not the system of what we know about. So the old model is I'm number one. I'm number one on iTunes. I'm number one on Spotify. I have the most people. Uh, this must be popular. Everybody come listen to me. And then I can sell that audience for ads. What I liked initially about what happened with podcasting is it was all these strange, quirky voices, people and with, with interesting lives. Um, we had, um, the rock and roll geek show. These shows are still around. The rock and roll geek show. Michael Butler was an old ex real rock guy. And he'd tell his stories of the road. We had Don and drew two wacky young married kids in an old beat up farmhouse in Wisconsin. We have, um, uh, Madge Weinstein, the bloated lesbian who lives in Chicago, <laughs> you know, all these crazy. And that's what she called her, calls herself to this day. All these crazy type of very different programs um, that have nothing to, weren't even there for profit. It was just to do a podcast. And and so I think we're returning to that where mm. people are making podcasts because it's an adjunct to what they already do. Uh, which is always nice. It's a um, it's part of their business. It's just a part of them sharing you know something with their friends. And 
um, you know, it's, it, it, you don't have to jump into this and do this for money. In fact, you're probably going to be very disappointed. Yeah. And what we've seen now about three years ago was a whole new resurgence of development in podcasting. And we now have more feedback mechanisms than ever for people who are making podcasts to immediately see that someone is listening. They're sending some form of value back to them. And, you know, and we're rebuilding kind of the whole concept. So I, I feel that now that we've learned and funny enough, we've learned through things like OnlyFans uh, that you don't need to be number one. You don't need to be the biggest. You mm -hmm. don't need to have the most. You just need to have a thousand people who will support you. Yes. And whether that support is um, just emotionally or if it's with five dollars a month. Um, you only need five dollar a month people get a thousand of them. Well, you can you can start to live in certain places of the world. Mm. You know, so that's what we've really taken away from it. So I think there's never been a better time to start podcasting because a lot of these um, podcasts are drying up. In fact, I'll tell you, because uh, we run the podcast index in the last 90 days, it's really only 400,000 podcasts that have published a new episode. So wow. while the four or five million number may look really big, it's much smaller when you see how active those podcasts are. Hmm. What do you think it is about Joe Rogan that, you know, people love? It's the exact same mechanism that we saw with Serial, where we live in a soundbite, quick hit, fastly edited, keep your attention, throw lots of stuff on the screen. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That's the kind of world we live in for interviews and uh, everything has been attuned to it. So politicians know how to, this is not new, but it's only gotten progressively worse where, you know, and this is why I, I mean, you're one and you're doing a podcast, which is, you know, that's, that's my wheelhouse. But when I get a request from like a mainstream outfit, I, I, I just respectfully decline because I know that if they, if it's not live, they're going to interview me for an hour and they'll use 37 seconds mm. and, and it's frustrating. And, and, and so you're really not getting your message across. No one can really hear what I'm about. And I understand why and that's perfectly fine. So Joe became really the great conversationalist and yes. he spent, you know, 15, 16, um, he's probably about 14, 15 years honing that skill. Yes. I mean, it started off very differently than what it is now. So when you can just watch, polarizing figures like uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. You, know, you, know, you, you, see, you see him for, for a couple hours, you get a whole different insight into him than you do from, you know, mainstream, well, there's the anti-vaxxer, Bobby Kennedy. You know, it's like, okay, but there's some nuance to yes. the story. Yes. You know, even myself, uh, and I, I love going, I, for Joe and I, it's like we, we text from time to time and but he invites me on and we, we update each other. That's like two yes. old buddies sitting down like, Love hey, it. let me tell you what's going on in my life. And yes. I think that conversation, um, that long form, which is not, it's not easy to do. And you know this from your podcast, booking people is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Having a show which where you have a guest is complicated. They're scheduling. It's very it's really intense to to do that. It's hard to just make it all work. Um, not all guests are great as well. Um, it, it's it's not an easy format, and and to have someone sit down and talk for three hours, 
um, Joe is just, he's outstanding at doing that. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. Not to, you know, throw shade on doing weather on Fox and Friends, um, but I really enjoy just sitting and chatting with someone. I had Tyrus in here before you, and I really love him. And just being able to sort of dig into who he is and how he got here and not having to go to a commercial break is is beautiful. And I love radio. Yeah. You and I have talked about this. It's like, I feel it's where I'm the most comfortable because I don't have the distraction of what my hair looks like or what I'm wearing that day. You and me both, Janice. <laughs> you and me both. I know we're going to talk about that too. But, you know, there is something very special. I think that people... I'm sure there's studies that have been done where people retain information better through your ears, through listening. Um, so I just, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And, and that is, that's an important point. Um, podcasting for me, even though video podcasts have existed for since inception, almost to me, a podcast is audio. For me, it is radio. Yep. I've always been a radio guy. I fell into television kind of by accident. Um, it's not it's not my passion. You can do radio pretty much by yourself. It's it's always great if you can if you can afford to have an engineer, but you can in in fact do it by yourself. It's um, and and I I want this. This is a very weird thing when people started putting cameras on their podcasts and you see one or two people or or four people sitting there with headphones on and big mics in front of their face <laughs> i never really understood that and i and i know that there's there is an obvious audience who want to see that mm -hmm. but even the joe rogan show i don't know the exact numbers but i'm pretty sure that most people listen to it yes. and because you, it's for you to find several hours in your day, just sit and watch. Although there's many people I know who sit at home and that's their evening television. Let's see who Joe Rogan has on mm -hmm. and they'll, you know, they'll cast it onto their TV and watch it there. In general, you know, you can listen to an audio program, a radio show, a podcast while you're doing many other things. I, I still to this day go to the same hairdresser in Austin. We moved 70 miles west. We're in Fredericksburg in Hill Country. I love going to Austin once every five, six weeks, because that's when I get to listen to any podcast mm. uninterrupted, just me in the car for an hour and a half each way. And I enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like listening to, you know, a CD when you're going on a road trip. You know, I enjoy listening to podcasts as well. For me, during the pandemic, uh, it was getting outside and walking. And that was kind of, you know, my reset. You know, I'm going to go outside for a walk now for an hour and I'm going to listen to my friend Megan Kelly interview mm -hmm. Adam Curry, you know, that and that was so entertaining and wonderful. And that's how you and I were we brought met. together. Yes, because yes. I, I listened to that podcast during a really tough time. And it was this moment where I could just sort of like breathe again. Right. And I'm listening to old friends talk about things and a very comforting and intimate and all of those things. So, you know, I, they always say that radio's dead and but it keeps reinventing itself. And I'm so grateful for that. And it's, it's technology. I mean, that's ex you're exactly right. The, 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 the basic concept of radio remains, um, but the technology improves over time. We went from medium wave, you know, or from long wave to medium wave, AM, uh, in came FM. And, and every single iteration is always laughed at. 
Mm. <laughs> Which is funny. Like even FM mob, oh, no, nah, it doesn't the signal doesn't reach far right, enough. Right, I you know, remember. Who cares about that <laughs> yes. stuff? You need special antenna, you know, this is not uh, the, no, no one it's not gonna happen. Then we got Sirius XM, which is a, it's a weird hybrid, but um I think initially a lot of people bought in to make sure they could continue to ho- to hear Howard Stern um and and other programming. Uh, and you know, again, it was like, oh no, that's never going to work. And you know, you see, twenty years later, I wouldn't say they're not struggling because of the cost of their infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, with you know maintaining satellites, which is again how podcasting and things that are available to everybody are always mocked. Is mm-hmm. my is my experience. So the minute anybody anywhere for any reason can create a podcast, i.e., their own radio show, yes. you're always going to see, see the establishment go. Nah, that's not going to work. Your voice is no good. You don't have the timing. You don't know what to do. It's, <laughs> you got to be professional. And you know. And over time, and I've been around long enough now. I've seen it happen. Podcasting, I guess, technically twenty years old now. Mm. Um, you know, it, it really has grown into something that is here to stay. And even though we see many, um, players trying to come into the field like Spotify, who did exclusives, which is the, uh, the antithesis of podcasting. The whole idea of a podcast is you can listen to it wherever you get your podcast, yes. which, whichever app you like to use. When it's only the Spotify app, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't win. And same with YouTube. They're doing the exact same thing. And they're going to try and capture, you know, podcasting. And I'm just sitting back like, okay, uh, it, everyone should be able to do it. And it shouldn't only have to be through a big Silicon Valley company. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of podcasting. Yeah, it's like, you know, inventing the wheel. They can, You can't really reinvent it. You can put fancy stuff on it. But it's yeah. it's always going to be that one invention that is, you know, stands the test of time. And you should be able to use your wheels on any road. That is correct. So I have to I have to say I the news of Tina Turner dying was terrible. Obviously, she's such a oh, what a big name. And I never met her personally, but it was like one of those losses where you kind of felt it. And I thought about you uh, because I remember you saying that she was one of those celebrities that you met in your MTV days with the big hair uh, and the hairspray um, that made an impression on you, right? Well, actually, I met her earlier than my MTV days when I was in Europe. That's right. Um, Because yes, yes. So tell me that story. So I was on, I started very early in radio at 15 in, in the Netherlands where I grew up. I'm an American, but moved there when I was seven with my folks. And, um, at 19, I found myself by what, by the grace of God, I found myself doing a weekly television show. This is a very small country at the time. Now there's like 17 million people. There are 14 million people that live there. They had two television stations. Uh, and they both came on at 7 p.m. and went off the air at 11.30. Very socialist, government-type run-out uh, deal. Now, that we're talking, uh, uh, this is 1981. And uh, I was fortunate to have, I think it was initially 35 minutes, but maybe later 50, like an hour, basically. And we, in fact, we did it live the first couple of seasons, which was crazy. 
um, and was called Countdown. And this is early days of MTV before started in 81. I started with, uh, with this television show in 84, which was right around the time where uh, the Netherlands itself was kind of the gateway to Europe, very mm. liberal, uh, open society, um, you know, there you really wanted to, it was the, the port of Rotterdam by itself, you know, the, the literal CDs would come into the Netherlands to be distributed throughout the, uh, or records at the time, I'm sorry, vinyl to be distributed throughout, uh, throughout Europe. So all of these artists would come through, they do concerts, it was, a, it was very famous for just being a great place to go test your music, see how the European audience would, um, would, would grok to it. And so we had all the greats, all the greats of the 80s were coming through, inc including Tina Turner. Of course, she had um, this huge... Uh, revival with uh, her role in Mad Max. Mm -hmm. uh, she had uh, the you know the the album which had all those hits, um, Private Dancer. Uh, you know, just just enormous, enormous uh, superstar. And she had always been revered in Europe, even um, because in America everyone kind of knew her from Ike Tina Turner, Not Bush City Limits, and she had started her kind of rekindled her career in Germany and in the Netherlands. And so she came through. We did huge concerts with her. And um, because I was an American, I could speak English, American fluently. And I was the host of the show. You know, I always tried to make people feel comfortable. And, you know, we had our own facilities and our own dressing rooms and everything. And, you know, nice restaurant for everyone to, you know, to eat. And so we would, I would try and hang out as much as possible. And Tina Turner was very personable. She was someone, she would sit down with you and hang out and laugh and have a drink and um, just, you know, she was great. And so I met her several times in, in several different um, uh, situations. And she actually wound up staying. She married a German uh, uh, record guy. Uh, and she wound up living in, in Germany, I think probably the last 25, 30 years of her life. So, you know, it, it was easy kind of to keep up on how she was doing. We knew she was sick for a long time. Mm. Uh, so, of course, it was incredibly sad. But, man, you hear any of those songs, certainly from that era, come on the radio. And, I, like, when I hear her and Brian Adams, I get oh, yeah. goosebumps. Yeah. It's only love. You know, like, oh, man, such a – and I, I think I still have a live concert in, in super VHS stereo somewhere. Uh, I have that cassette so, somewhere in the garage in a box. She was just fantastic, but she was in her heart. She was still Annie Mae Bullock. I mean, mm. she really was. And uh, just a beautiful person. And she would hug you. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was sad, but we'll all see each other someday soon. Mm, I love that. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I mean, we have to talk about that. Do you get sick of talking about the MTV stuff? 
No, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, of what I did there. And uh, no, I can't deny that that was that really was very important to get me to right where I am today. Talking to you, Janice Dean. Uh, well, tell me about that. I mean, you're a radio guy and then all of a sudden MTV explodes and then you're where would you say? Would you say like you were the second wave of VJs? Yeah, exactly. So the first, it started just this, it, you know, it's been 42 years, just this past August 1st. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a meme going around on the, on the internet, of course. Um, it's like the beginning of MTV is closer to Pearl Harbor than it is to today. Like, okay, that makes me feel good. <laughs> so the early, the early days was Mark Goodman, Martha Quinn, um, Nina Blackwood, Alan Hunter, and J.J. Jackson. These were the, I don't think I missed everything. Those were the originals um, when it started off and it was really small distribution. You have to also understand, people don't realize that cable was laughed at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh yes. television. Yep. No one's going to advertise on that. <laughs> no, that's not good. And, and it was also kind of synonymous with, in New York, we had Channel J, which was you know, like risque kind of weird people. It was, it was local access cable and you'd have um, the Robin bird show. Do we remember the Robin bird show? Do you remember this? No. Oh man. Was Robin he the bird artist? Uh, no, no, she, no. Robin bird was, I think she was a stripper and she had her own show on channel J <laughs> okay. and she had a song. I, I, it was, so she'd end every show with come on baby bang my box and all the, all the, <laughs> All the, everyone who was who was a guest on the show would sing along, and then it was Ugly George, famous. He he would go down the street, and he had this like a satellite dish on his head, and a helmet, and a, a backpack, and a camera, which were huge at the time. And he'd get women to come back to his studio and take their clothes off. I mean, that was cable. That's the way people. And in in Texas. Alex Jones was, you know, was on on local access cable right. doing his thing, you know, about the the new world order and the and the, the conspiracies that, that we're all going to die mm -hmm. and the elites want to get us. So that was what cable was. And now there's this music thing started by a bunch of radio guys. Yep. Actually, they ran it like a radio station for a long time, really a, a, an AOR album oriented rock type radio station. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, MTV is very racist didn't play any uh, black artists. No, there was no more racist than a, a country station at the mm -hmm. time, basically, uh, which changed thanks to Michael Jackson. You know, no one would get around that. Like, well, everyone liked it crossed over. Yeah. So things, you know, things changed. Um, so for me, I, again, I, I was a radio guy by accident, got into this television show in the Netherlands. I was doing that for about four years and I literally got a call, um, at my desk one day from Steve Leeds, legendary in, um, at MTV, uh, the music business. Uh, he ran all of A&R, you know, artist relations at Sirius XM up until their most recent purge. And Steve is one of those guys who you know he connects everybody he's i love that i love steve leeds and and he called me and said hey uh, you want to come and work for mtv and mtv had just launched in in europe mtv europe and i said you mean in, in europe or new york he said no new york he said manhattan he said yeah manhattan i said yeah sure <laughs> and two months later i moved to manhattan and wound up in uh uh, living in um, Hell's Kitchen, 1980, end of 86, 87, which it was Hell's Kitchen at the time, mm -hmm. and, and started working for MTV. And it was still this really rinky-dink, 
you know, little studio all the way down uh, by the river, uh, Unitel video. It was, I mean, it was professional, but it was understaffed. We had no hair department, no makeup department. The lighting guy came in once a week and said, stand on your X, bang the lights around with a stick. It's a good stand there. You look good. And, you know, that's how it really started. And, but at the same time, so this was second wave, MTV was now on in the basic cable package. Mm. And this was so when you got cable, wherever you were and cable, cable systems were still independent little cable systems owned by, you know, usually some wealthy guy who maybe made it in ranching or some other local business. And they, you know, just would run cable into their community. Uh, that's now all been purchased by NBC Universal Comcast. It's all rolled up into one. Uh, and so they would put you in their basic cable package, which I think was 40 stations. No, it wasn't. It was probably 20, 23 stations, but 40 million viewers around the country. That was the big news. Um, so we came in, they were, they, they were upgrading the talent, which is, I have to say MTV was, didn't really care about their VJs that much. You know, you were very disposable. Mm. Like you come in, yeah, well, we're going to like radio, honestly, you know, radio, you, uh, you know, this is other hot guy in this market. Let's bring him in. You go to middays, you go to middays, and then you go to overnights yes. and then you go to weekends and then you're, then you're out of the station. So that's kind of how they, they ran it. And so I came in with, uh, downtown Julie Brown, um, Kevin seal. I don't know if anyone remembers him, but Kevin was fantastic. Carolyn Heldman, um, Kennedy came a little bit later, mm -hmm. but she, uh, but she was, I would say, part of that wave. And there were some other, like uh, China, China Phillips, mm -hmm. Grace Lick's daughter. She was there. Uh, Dweezil and Moon Unit, they were there kind of off and on. Uh, but the core was really, uh, was really uh, me, Julie, Kevin, Carolyn. And uh, I think that's kind of what the second wave was. And that started off a new, a whole new era of, of MTV and, and new programming. Julie went on to do um, Club MTV, which was wildly successful. Uh, that was kind of her specialty on the on the channel. I was doing Headbangers Ball, um, you know. So things were starting to happen at MTV, and and it, and of course the you know the artists loved it because they could literally sit at home and watch their video come by, and and people are keeping it on like. The radio with pictures. Yeah, yeah. Does it seem like a dream when you think back? Um. Well, that's an interesting question. When I, as I'm talking to you, I'm I have my eyes closed and I am visualizing it all. So in a way, yeah, it, it's this is something that'll never come back. No one who was born. Uh, I mean, we were Gen X. I mean, although yes. I'm right on the, I'm Generation X with boomer tendencies. But I'm, but Generation X, we we were the faces and voices, certainly in America, of a generation, and we moved to the next generation. And video music uh, videos, music videos have become commoditized, and no one will really understand what we all share together. And I love it when I meet somebody, and it's always the CEO of some big company, <laughs> and he'll figure it out or she'll figure it out and go, wait a minute, wait you're. You're from MTV. And then, you know, the tie comes off, the shirt opens, Metallica T-shirts underneath. You know, it's like, <laughs> so it, it, it's not a dream, but it is 
a piece of history that I'm very happy I share with a lot of people. Tell me about your last day there. Well, when I got to MTV, I had promised myself coming from Europe that I was also going to really get into this internet. And I bought myself a, a Mac Plus with a whopping 20 megabytes external SCSI drive. This thing was as big as a school, uh, like an attache case, 20 megabytes. I mean, this is nothing. 20 megabytes, you put that on your thumb drive and, and you're still laughing at how small that is. But the drive was huge and I got a modem. And so I learned how to connect to the internet before there was a World Wide Web. And I, I really didn't, I knew that, that it was hard to get onto, but that's where all the cool kids were because at colleges, universities, they had computers, which are all command line. Again, there was not even really, uh, Macs were expensive and still kind of a novelty. They had access to computers. So they would be on these computers and there was part of this network and you could send email, electronic mail, Brian Gumbel. <laughs> and, um, and there were news groups. So you could participate in, in conversations, kind of early forums, or I guess in a way, a very early Reddit, if you want to look at it that way. So I had this parallel thing going on while I was at MTV and I was, I was getting great information because even though we had a MTV news department, I knew stories because they were happening out in the world and people were emailing these to me and I knew them two days before it reached New York. Hmm. So this was kind of fun. And, and at a certain point, and, and you know, so now fast forward to the web and I've already seen that we can broadcast on this thing. I'm not sure what broadcasting means at that point. Does it mean sending an audio signal or a, we had some rudimentary video, um, see you, see me, which was literally one frame per second. Uh, but you know, maybe a website, that's a, a form of broadcasting. You can publish, you can print. And I knew this was a future that I wanted to be a part of. And I lived in New Jersey at the time and I was driving in route three and it's a beautiful sunny day. And I, and I actually didn't have to be there at eight 30 as usual. I had a, a 10 30 call time and I'm driving in and I'm coming up to the Lincoln tunnel and the sky is just blue, you know, not a chemtrail in sight. It's just blue. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. It's beautiful. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I have enough saved up to, to live for a year. I think I just got to do this. And I went in, I did the top 20 video countdown, which was also a show that I was doing. And we got to number one and I j it just came over me and I ended and I said, you know what? That was number one. And, and I'm leaving. This has been my last show. It's been great to be here. Uh, I see the, the future for me is on the internet and, you know, I look forward to uh, seeing you all there and, uh, it, it, you know, goodbye. And I, and I left and I walked out and I never went, never, never went back. Oh, gosh, that story is just I still it gives me chills because you just you just did what you felt you needed to do. And you didn't really check with anyone, did you? I didn't even check with my wife at the time. Notice ex-wife. Not that that was the reason for our, <laughs> for our breakup, but no, I didn't. It, it was it just felt so right now at the time I I had um, uh, a syndicated radio show. And I really like my syndicators, uh, Gary Schoenfeld and Ron Hartenbaum. And, and I went straight to them and I said, hey, I just quit. 
And they first went, what? Shouldn't you have talked it over with us first? Because the radio show said, you know, I think the radio show will stand by itself, but I want to start an internet company. I want to start it with you guys. And, uh, and we did. And we didn't even know what it was going to be. Uh, I said, okay, let's just start. And we started making content. And, you know, all of a sudden, pieces started to click together. And we got, um, we actually got a license to do the 19... 96 Grammy Awards, we could do a cybercast. Oh my goodness. Yes, we called it a cybercast. We didn't quite know what it was, but we actually brought a huge internet line into the Shrine Auditorium, a T1, which by today's standards, you have more bandwidth in your home. Uh, so we brought a T1, one megabit per second, brought that in. We had, um, so we had the license, but we, we couldn't approach their advertisers, but we were able to get I think Visa and Casio and Casio was important because they had just come out with the first, one of the first digital cameras where you could take a picture, take the card out, put the card into your computer or connect it. Maybe it was connecting through a cord and then you could, you know, upload these pictures. So we had a little team and we were backstage and we did have cool access and we had little chats going where people could, could participate. And we had the artists when they, when they got their award, uh, they come by our table, you know, kind of that press room, and, and then they could uh, take some questions from the chat room. And we had this little, very rudimentary one frame per second video. Had so it was really exciting. Had this ever been done, Adam? Had anyone? No, 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 no. I think this was the first for sure. Oh my goodness! And and so we did that, and we didn't lose money on it uh, because we had the sponsors. But okay, and then after that, it was like, all right, let's see what happens. And you know, there was, there was I think I had three or four or five people at the time. And it was just crickets, nothing. And, and like two weeks later, the phone rings and it's a guy named Robert McCauley. And he says, uh, this is uh, Bob McCauley from Anheuser-Busch. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about uh, maybe doing something for our company. I said, well, hold on a second. Let me get the uh, sales department for you. you know, <laughs> Hello, it's Adam again. <laughs> yes, this is the sales department, Bob. And uh, Bob McCauley said, you know, we saw what you were doing with the uh, with the Grammy Awards. We would like to discuss building a website for Budweiser and maybe some of our other brands. And that started a, a very, very great relationship, but also an entire business for me, building websites for corporations. Mm. So we built Budweiser.com, BudLight.com, PlanetReebok.com, uh, just a lot of big, big brands. And these connections came through the established relationships we had with our, with my partners, because they were selling radio spots. So they already talked to a lot of these big companies. And it's so interesting, the path we went down with Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser to see what happened to them today hmm. is, Janice, it's unthinkable. I remember speaking with uh, so you had August Bush the Fourth, Woody, uh, who was supposed to be the they all have nicknames. He was supposed to be the the heir and take over, and that didn't even work out so well for him. But before that was Grinder, August Bush the Third, and and Grinder was uh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm trusting my guys here that that this internet thing will be okay, and uh, we'll 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 check this out. Um, and, and we started saying, well, you know, it would be really cool is if you could put. Budweiser.com on your cans and bottles. Well, it's as if we had insulted God himself. 
there will never be anything on our cans, but our logo is established and no, nothing changed here ever, 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 ever. <laughs> now, a few years later, as other beers and other beverage companies started putting their internet address on their cans, that changed. Mm-hmm. But to see where we went with even the, uh, the concept of creating a one-off can that is not the official approved Budweiser or Bud Light can, you're not going to put any, I don't care who it is. You don't put anybody else on that can, Mm. certainly not superimposed in front of the Budweiser logo, Mm -hmm. which showed me how lost that company is after the sale to, you know, InBev and Lord knows what else has been happening in there. That that was pretty quick. I mean, that's we're only talking a couple of decades. I mean, forget again, forget about who is on the can, what the controversy is. The fact that that happened at all is mind blowing. Yeah, that's even from a brand management perspective. What has who is educating these people? Mm-hmm. I just saw an interview with uh, you know one of the family members of the Anheuser Busch uh, family, and he he was appalled. He's, he, that's exactly what he said, basically. This is not the product that my family put out there at the beginning. It's different. It's completely different. It's just being mismanaged. I mean, that, that's that's basic. And I think that there's been a good exercise. Uh, and of course, I'm referring to Dylan Mulvaney and, uh, and the Bud Light controversy. It's been a good exercise in brand management. And because it, and it, it wasn't even Mulvaney. That was the problem. I'd say the interview with the uh, with the brand manager who was just so contrite and, oh, uh, you know, we've got this fratty brand. I mean, yeah, that's the that's the beauty of Bud Light. Of course. What's up? It's stupid. That's what that's what, that's what we love. The the concept that a brand manager would just scoff at, at their customers that way. And, oh, no, no, we're just going to change it. We're going to force them into this and we'll overnight give them this and that that. That's that was really the offense. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's we have educated an entire marketing generation that needs to get their head screwed back on straight. Mm-hmm. This is not going to end well. I think that the influencer market now and and, I, and I'm I'm not in, I'm not an advertising guy anymore. I don't care. I'm not interested in ads. But I come from that world. And I understand, I mean, it was Gillette was one of our, our clients. I understand brand management and, and how you need to be careful and protect your brand like it's your baby. And you just give that to influencers and let them go. No, you, that is a very, very risky business. It can work out great. And, and most of these brand managers, they outsource that to some other company who's taking care of that for them. They're not paying attention. And I, I hope that that, Honestly, for our children, I hope that destroys a lot of this nonsense, this influencer stuff, this influencer marketing. Um, it's destructive. It's all egotism. It's it's greed. None of it is. It's dishonest. It's not good for our children to grow up and to actually aspire to want to do this as a vocation. I agree. I agree. You got to tell me the Lisa Marie Presley story, because, again, we lost her as well. And you have one of the greatest stories of all time about how you were introduced to that family. Well, so when very early on, um, as I was getting into the Internet, um, I, I set up my first server 
Uh, this is early, very, like early 90s. And uh, the guys who were helping me with that said, well, you need a domain name. I'm like, mm, okay, let me think. Uh, why don't we do, uh, oh, I know, I'm going to use it for MTV. Let's do MTV.com, uh, which was which was very appropriate, actually, because, you know, it was I was just doing this internet stuff, and MTV had already told me that they weren't interested in the internet. They had the AOL keyword, so we're good, man, we're good. You play around that internet thing. And so while I got that, I figured, well, I get a couple more. Let me get uh, curry.com. Um, I said, oh, let me get... Uh, Elvis.com and, you know, a couple other um, funny off the wall ones. And this is when it didn't cost any money. You literally, he passed away not too long ago. You, you emailed the guy, the guy, and he would just add it to the database. And he said, okay, you're all good. You're good to go. And, and that was your, that was your registration. There was no go daddies or anything like that. And so MTV, when I quit, they were pretty mad at me and they sued me over the name mtv.com whereas i hadn't really thought about it and you know again they they weren't interested in the internet but i think there was some vindictiveness there and you know i had embarrassed them i'll, I'll be honest it was not a it was not a nice way to leave but it was it, it wasn't me trying to do anything else than just do something for myself and get out of the situation i didn't want it to be complicated um so it, it i'm not proud of how i did it but what they then did is they sued me over this name. Uh, and, and I was like, what kind of douchebags are you? You gave me permission and, and you could have just asked. If you had asked, I would have said, yeah, that makes sense. Here's MTV.com. And I probably would have said, can I keep Adam at MTV.com as an email address? Because that would be cool to have. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. They sued me. So they're like, you know what? You know, and so we went through a whole lawsuit and we settled that and everything turned out okay. Um, but then uh, Lisa Marie Presley contacted me about Elvis.com. And she said, hey, could I have that domain name? And I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. And gave it to her with great pleasure. And in fact, I had, I had an email address, king at Elvis.com, which I'd set up. And I had, I think, 30,000 emails from people who were emailing what they presumed to be the king. Um, and I gave her all those, too. I said, you got to read these because people really love, really love them, man. You, 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 you got to see what they've written. And uh, so, yeah, just it was kind of this beautiful lesson where you had this kind of this this corporate giant which had come from rock and roll roots and just turned into an ugly machine you know with lawsuits and had forgotten how to be human to someone who comes from the epitome of rock and roll and fame and an image and everything who just picked up the phone and said hey you know could could I could I have that and for me, the lovely moment was how that came in as a request, just mm. like a question and not, you know, some crazy legal lawsuit. Yeah. Men in suits banging down your door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it is what it is. We got a lot of lawyers in the world. It's one of my favorite stories, truly, Adam. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I want to continue to talk to you because I... I just think you're one of those special humans. And, you know, I, I know I've said that to you before, but I really believe that you came into my life for a reason. And the chapter in the book, again, I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I, you know, you know me, I don't like selling stuff. I like writing the book, but having to sell it is really tough for me. But it's worth the price of admission just for Adam Curry's story. How about that? Well, that's very kind of you to say. And 
um, Tina and I are very sure that you and your husband came into our lives for reasons as well. Uh, we loved having, the, we cherished that lunch we had with you and we definitely hope we'll connect again when we're in, in New York or if you ever find yourself in Texas. Um, the book, yeah, that the chapter is great about me, but man, all these heroes that you have highlighted for all these different reasons, it is a, I mean, it's one of our favorite favorite books that has come in we get lots of books people sending them to us but that your whole book is filled with beautiful stories mine is a little lighter you know you can take a breath and go oh, oh no. but it's all inspirational aspirational and um i'll sell it for you janice dean mm. people need to go out and get this book you're such a sweetheart you really are and uh well, uh, yes. And the next time you're in New York, you're going to come stay with us. We're going to take a picture because that's the one thing I thought to myself. We never took a picture together. And that bothers we me. We didn't. We didn't take a picture. Are you kidding me? We did not. Because I was oh, like, how yeah. did. They? But you know what? We were so wrapped up in our wonderful conversation with each other and knowing that yeah. moment. We didn't you know, we didn't need the picture. But the next time yeah. you're here, we're taking a picture. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> well, say hi to Tina for me. Uh, I love you dearly, my friend. And, you know, I hope you'll come back on the podcast. Anytime, Janice. Love you so much. And you just give me a ring. I'll be there. You're the best. Thank you, Adam, once again for such a fun conversation. You will love Adam's chapter in my book, I Am the Storm, if you haven't read it yet. The chapter is called We Settled In for a Fight, The Visionary versus MTV. You can also catch Adam on his podcast, No Agenda, and he's also on social media at Adam Curry. And of course, he has his own website, adamcurry.com. And we will definitely invite him to come back again. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.